Again, that is Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this moment in our lives where we can come together and hear your word hear you speak to us. We thank you for the truthfulness and the trustworthiness and the, the goodness and the power of your Holy Word. We thank you that by your Spirit you have given us an all-sufficient, unchanging, 
word that can not only guide us and, and, and teach us, but can also correct us and can change us from one degree of glory to another if by faith we hear your word and receive it and choose not to neglect it. We thank you for giving us another year of life. We thank you for the fact that you have shown your faithfulness to us in so many ways over this past year. And as it comes to a close, would you help us to spend some time reflecting on just how great you are and how good you are to your people in particular? May we never cease to to be at wonder and, and, and to, to find it a, a subject of great interest to look into your word and to see your, your wonderful plan of salvation and how you have been with your people and worked on our behalf throughout the ages and how you have promised just as surely as Christ came that he will come again. We acknowledge our sin and our unworthiness but we rejoice in the fact that you sent your only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life and so we we come before you at this time thinking about all of these things and more we acknowledge even this morning there are things that we should not have said should not have done things we should have said and should have done that we have not done. We, we ask your forgiveness as you tell us to, to pray every day that you'd forgive us of our sins. And so help us to forgive others and, and we ask your forgiveness for the things that we, that we have done wrong even up to this moment. We thank you that you consistently love all who are in Christ, all who are in your Son with an everlasting love. You, you love anyone who looks to Him with a love that doesn't just talk about love, but shows itself wrapped in a person who lived for us, who died for us, and who's coming back for us. So as we continue to look into this passage, I, I pray that we would see the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that this would fill our hearts with wonder and with passion for Him. And to keep pressing on in the faith. To stand firm. And to not neglect this great salvation that is found in Him and in Him alone. For those who are mourning at this time, I pray that this would be an encouragement to them. For those of us who maybe are struggling and maybe even are in some way neglecting this great salvation, I pray this would be a time of loving conviction and a time of repentance. And again, for all of us, may this be a time of worship as we look at Christ, who He is and what He has done for whoever will come to Him. For we ask these things in His name. Amen. As you will see on the, the screen, the sermon is entitled, Jesus Christ, Our Prophet, Priest, and King. 
And it's mainly the first three, three or four verses here that I wanted to, to spend some time in with us this morning. But I have basically three points um, split up in just that way. Christ the prophet, Christ our priest, and Christ our king. Uh, before I begin to focus on that first point, maybe you've heard this analogy um, where people say something like, we don't want to lose the, the forest for the trees. We don't want to lose the trees for the forest. So to understand um, something about the person and work of Christ, this is one of the ways that um, Scripture makes it clear who He is and what He has done. It, it focuses on these three offices and there's one sense in which we want to, to look at each of these offices, each of these roles that Christ fulfills that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Um, but we, we also have to acknowledge that there's an overlap. Um, there's not a, a separation, if you will, um, of these offices because Christ is one person. Um, but for the first time in history, what we see in Jesus Christ is something that God has never done before. Um, and, and the background of Christ and these offices is important. You see, if you're listening to me, uh, not to assume that we're all fresh this morning or that we're all thoroughly familiar with the storyline of Scripture, but if you're listening, maybe this will help you. The storyline of Scripture can be understood this way. Creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We find this in Genesis 1 through 2 um, in particular. And that we, we see that there was a man named Adam who was made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And that he, he made Eve from Adam. And from them comes the whole human race, but because they chose to um, disbelieve God's word and to believe in the word of a tempter, of a deceiver named Satan who came in the form of a serpent, uh, we all fell in Adam. We all became now by nature sinners, and so we, we have a, a broken spiritual relationship. We all have a relationship with God. Sometimes you hear people talking about having a relationship. The question is not whether you have one. The question is whether you have the right relationship with God, which can now only be found through Jesus Christ, as he himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as Paul puts it uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, uh, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And this concept of a mediator, once sin entered, became necessary because there was no way in and of ourselves that we were worthy to enter into a healthy, loving relationship with this God who we are against by nature. And so we needed these people called mediators. So um, after creation and fall, we see the storyline of redemption unfolding. And we have these three offices. So let's look at this office of prophet first of all. 
When we think about a prophet, simply put, the prophet was a chosen mouthpiece for God. A, a, a man that God would choose to speak on behalf of the living God. He was a mediator so that the voice of God could come to the people of God by the word of God. But God never spoke audibly to all his people. As you hear my voice speaking to you this morning, outside of this relationship and this connection of a mediator. So look again at verse 1 with me. In the past, God spoke to our fathers. I like the way the the NASB actually puts it. Um, There's a few different translations, and they're they're all good, but listen to how the New American Standard Bible puts it. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. And so it's, a, it's the same concept there. But the, the subject, again, of Scripture is God himself. And so these, these people were to communicate the very voice of God to God's people. In the past, and follow, the, follow the order here, in the past God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So this is touching on the reality that God also communicated at times through things like dreams to a small group of people. Once in a while you had someone receiving a dream and then there's an interpretation. He would also communicate through acts um, once in a while through experiences. He'd make things clear once or twice you hear something about a still, small voice. But the main line of communication between uh, God and His people has always been what we call the Word of God. And so the prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord. After communicating personally with God, not because they were any better, but because they were chosen for this purpose, they would come and say, This is what God has said, that we should believe and think and do because of his word to us, because of who he is and what he has said. But notice what verse 2 says. But in these last days, so there's in the past, God had a form of communication, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so we see that this role of prophet finds its finality its completion, its sufficient end in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a term that we need to think about. You can actually say it in one word, revelation. A prophet was an agent of what you call special revelation. General revelation is what Psalm 19 talks about in the beginning. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now obviously the heavens don't sing like we just did. But in another sense, and you see this just living in a beautiful country like this, you see this flying in the air and traveling to other beautiful countries, you know what it means that the heavens declare the glory of God. When you see the wisdom of what it took to put together this earth, when you see the beauty, the power of the ocean, 
There's a form of general revelation. As if the, the whole of creation is saying, there's a maker behind what you see and feel. And so, these prophets were agents of what you call special revelation, which had to do with words. It's personal communication. But Christ brings this office to an end. Christ is the first person who fulfills all three of these offices in themselves. Christ goes on then to appoint 12 apostles who complete for us what we call the New Testament. Uh, at the time that Christ arrived, all true Jews would have accepted the 39 books as we know them. Uh, what we have is our Old Testament as the verbal communication of God through writing. When we say things like, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds by saying, thanks be to God, there's a history to that. There's a very important reason why we need to say those things sometimes, and we need to remember them. Uh, one simple application of this whole concept that Jesus is the ultimate and final prophet is this. If you go out on the street and hear someone claiming, God told me this, the Lord told me that, or you see a flyer that says, come visit us, we're having prophet so-and-so or prophetess so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, run. Run for the hills. Don't, don't even waste time thinking about it. But more importantly, if you have friends or family who or yourself, don't know how to think about this clearly, I want to help you with that by pointing again to this passage. Christ came to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies that were made about Him, but He came to fulfill the need for these mediatorial uh, uh, offices, these mediators would no longer be needed because now we have Remember what 1 Timothy says? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we are told we have one mediator between God and man. None of the older uh, mediators, as, as amazing as we might like to see them and study them and even you know, look at them and even exemplify certain things about the old prophets and priests and kings. Maybe we have your, you know, someone might have their favorite king or their favorite priest or prophet. None of them could fulfill the necessary task in a way that they could say what Jesus says on the cross. Remember those last three English words, which is one Greek word, tetelestai, paid in full, which kind of comes out as it is finished. Uh, what he's saying when he says it is finished is not just um, sin has been paid for, but the need for the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is gone. The need for anyone else to stand as a priest to offer sacrifices has been completed. God the Father has accepted what I just went through for three hours. It is finished. And He bows His head and offers up His soul to God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But we see Christ fulfilling this office of prophet and he continues to speak to us today 
through the word of God by the Spirit who was sent after he ascended. And the author to the Hebrews continues, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. This is uh, speaking now in a sense of Jesus' humanity. And because of the righteousness and the, the good works that Jesus fulfilled and, and what he accomplished, the Father has made him ruler. Remember what Jesus said uh, in the Great Commission after we finished the book of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize them. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. And he says these things because this is a fulfillment of a, a number of prophecies. Coming back to um, one that we focused on at the end of Matthew in Daniel and the, the vision and the dream that, that Daniel received, he saw this Son of Man receiving the authority, the power and worship from all nations. And we're seeing here the same kind of idea. Jesus is appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So within the, the, the context of Jesus and these three offices he fulfills, it's important that we see right there at the end of verse uh, 2 and the beginning of verse 3 that we're seeing that Jesus is again both divine. He is the God-man. He's fully or truly divine and truly human yet without sin. So what he goes on to say, uh, we see that he's the creator there through whom he made the universe. And look at verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, this is a way of saying that the Father and the Son share the same divine nature. And you start to get the sense through passages like this that there's a, a simple logic to why we as Christians, as Protestants, as evangelicals, not in the political sense, but in the long-term historical sense, why we as true Christians believe in one God who is eternal, he is one, he is one in his essence and nature, but three in person, in Father, He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we sing the doxology. That's why they were written, because we see that there's worship given to the Son, there's worship given to the Father, and rightfully to the Spirit. He's also called God. But we see here in verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, and notice what else he says. Remember at the end of verse 2 we're told the world was the universe was created through him. But now look at the second half of verse 3. Sustaining, or as some translations put it, upholding, which literally means from the, the root word there, consistently, continually governing. It's not this idea of what I think is rightly called deism. That's probably the, the right term, I think. Deism is a concept where it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then once he rested on the seventh day, he took a long step back. And he kind of 
Well, you know those things that we used to make, the gigs? Well, creation's kind of like a big gig, right? God just started spinning things and they keep spinning somehow on their own. They just, molecules and everything just figures out how to make it work. Oh, and you see I'm making a mockery of that, right? That doesn't make any sense. The root word here, sustaining. Sustaining all things. How many things? All things by His powerful word. This means that the, the concept of God and His sovereignty and His involvement in creation is as I've said, I think I've said it two or three times now, the, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul put it this way, there's not a single maverick molecule. This is the view that we should have as Bible-believing Christians of how sovereign our God is. And I think we should find great courage and comfort in that. Because otherwise, the only alternative is something else is in control. And there's only one God who is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and who is worthy of our worship, who is a loving father to his children. But we're told here, regardless of how we feel about it, that the Son not only created all things, but is the governor of all seconds and and hours and years and all the molecules. But notice what he continues to tell us. The author of Hebrews continues in verse 3. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is where we see secondly the, the office of priest. A Jesus in his prophetic office is not just prophet, but he is the last priest. And if you go back in your mind's eye, if you don't know, you can read certain portions of Leviticus and Exodus. But the priest was designed to also be a mediator. Um, think about it this way. If you can see me, um, if you can't, well, just try to use your imagination. The, the prophet was the representative of God to the people. So he'd come from the private presence of God and speak what God said to the people to represent God and his heart and mind to the people. But the priest was in the other direction. He was kind of a representative. He was a mediator between God and man in the other direction. He was representing the people of God in the presence of God. And so what did they do over and over? They would offer these sacrifices and they would confess the sins of the people, seeking God's forgiveness and mercy on behalf of the nation of Israel, on behalf of the people. And they would actually wear these 12 stones, some of the priests would wear these 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus fulfills this office. How does he bring it to an end? Look, look what it says again. After he had. Those three words there tell us something's been done. This isn't talking about an ongoing work. No, he, he is still our great high priest. He still represents us before God. There's a, a modern hymn called Before the Throne of God Above. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives 
and pleads for me. My name is uh, graven on his hands. My name is written in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He is our great high priest. And it is finished because look what it says. After he had provided purification for sins. See, all the priests before, the reason that they had to keep offering those sacrifices was because everything that was commanded of the old covenant people, these acts of obedience, and particularly here, the office of priests and their sacrifices, they were shadows. No animal can make a purification of our sin. No animal can atone for the sins of men and women. Because animals are innocent. Furthermore, they don't have living souls. They're not made in the image of God like we are. I love animals too. Maybe you've never heard that before, but Scripture only tells us that people have souls and that people are made in God's image. In fact, we're told throughout the rest of this chapter, if you remember reading through the rest of this chapter, that Christ is superior to all the prophets, to all the priests, to all the kings, and to angels, beings that are spiritual, that are actually out of our sight and out of our realm, so to speak. He's above it all. He owns it all. But the purpose of Christ coming here is focused on in his priestly role. After he had made purification for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that, that picture that, that we're supposed to see there is that all throughout the ages, for thousands of years, and I, I would venture to say hundreds of thousands of animals sacrificed as a, as a picture that a holy God requires justice and that the, the, the blood that was shed was representative of the kind of justice that God demands. But instead of us, these animals were sacrificed, but it was an ongoing work. The priest couldn't sit down and maybe he took a seat for the night. And in the morning he got up again. And again and again and again and again. This picture that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is showing us if you come to Jesus Christ and trust in His work on the cross, you have come to an eternal, victorious, completed salvation. Amen, church? Amen. That is the best news, not just good. This is the gospel that we believe and must proclaim. He sat down. His work was perfect. And so He became, as verse 4 goes on to say, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And we have this list of rhetorical questions and um, Deuteronomy and a host of Psalms is quoted here. But here's the purpose of the rhetorical questions. To get you to see that Christ is above it all. That Christ is supreme. Uh, look at the beginning of verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? In fact, he goes on to say in verse 6, that God says, and he's quoting Psalms here, he's showing us how Christ is the fulfillment of these Psalms. God says to his 
Son, he says this, let all God's angels worship Him. Now we're told all throughout Scripture that this one true and living God, He doesn't share worship. It is blasphemy to worship anyone or anything but God. But, but God here is saying, worship the Son. Again, this, this shows us the divine nature of Christ. In verse 8, he goes on to say, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, he says in verse 9. And I, I just want you to, to see when you read through this chapter, over and over, these questions are supposed to, to show us, along with what's been said in the first couple of verses. Christ is not a created being. He's not part of this creation, but this is the wonder of Christmas, is it not? The uncreated, eternal Son of God who made the angels. I'm sorry to say it, but actually I'm not. There's false religions that exist in, the, in our world today that would have you think and as part of their foundational doctrinal teaching that Jesus is a created being. That Jesus is brothers with Lucifer. That he's some sort of spiritual angel that became the son of God at some point in his earthly ministry. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and other individuals who don't understand how to see these things as given to us in Scripture, they believe these things which are lies. And this is very important for us to get clear because God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And while God is a very far above our minds, far, far greater than we can understand. Very, he's mysterious. There's things that we can't fully grasp. That's what it means that He's God and we're not. While that is true, we need to understand how we should see Christ through passages of Scripture like this. And this is why it, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes us committing ourselves to these kinds of emphases, these kinds of studies, these kinds of passages, and taking the time to, to focus so that we don't do what the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about. Look at verse 1 and 2 again of chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not what drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect or if we ignore such a great salvation? See what he's saying there. He's not talking to unbelievers, by the way. He's giving a warning passage. You see, what, what, what was going on in the book of Hebrews is this. It's common to every age, but it shows itself in different ways. 
the Hebrews, the, the, the people who received this letter, which most scholars think is, a, is an entire sermon. So, just a word of encouragement. <laughs> if you feel like an hour is a long sermon, imagine 13 chapters. <laughs> the, the author of Hebrews was writing to Christians who were discouraged. Uh, the, it, the, the idea behind it, I think, is that most of them were either Jews who became Christians, and so they had the old covenant patterns and people and offices in the back of their minds, or they were surrounded by Jews who were trying to, to teach them that you know, how, you, how you really live out this Christian life is by adding a little bit of Judaism into it. Can't you see you're being persecuted? Doesn't look like there's success in this Christian faith. It's not growing as far as you can see. And they're being tempted to doubt the sufficiency of Christ, to, to give in to false teaching. And so this book is filled with warning passages, but this is written to believers, not unbelievers. That's why he has the word we in there. We must pay careful attention. He, he's contrasting the old covenant, which predominantly was received by the people through these messengers, these angels. They would bring sometimes the, the message, and it could also be referring to, the, again, those offices of uh, prophet, those officers, and the word of God that they would bring. But he says, listen, think about the judgments of God in the old covenant. When people chose to neglect his word and just do whatever was right in their own eyes, like the book of Judges says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Think about the kinds of things that they faced. Years of famine, years of oppression, 433 years or so in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. So he's saying, if they received just punishment, how shall we escape? If we ignore such a great salvation. And this is the heart of God, I think, for his people in every age. Is it not the case in this moment that we're living in? That for whatever reason, we, we face discouragement towards our Christian faith. We, we feel discouraged at times. We face some sort of opposition. We're even tempted to think, well... I'm going through the motions and I'm not going to stop doing that, but I don't know if this thing is really working. I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and we can slack off. We can say, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to do what, what Hebrews and, and other portions of Scripture commands me to do. There's a command for us that he gives the, these discouraged Christians in Hebrews chapter 10. This is kind of like a, an antidote for how we fight against discouragement and the temptations that we will always face as the minority. And by the way, that's what we are. Every true Christian is part of a, a great and awesome minority. And Jesus said that the world hated him, it will hate his followers, but we're to take up our cross, whatever that will be, and follow him. Many will be called but the chosen will be few. And so while we wait for his return, we need to hear passages like this one. 
Most Bibles will have it entitled, A Call to Persevere. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. See the, the, the word picture there, just let me pause for a second. That purification that the rituals the priests would do, this is showing us that Christ is unlike them as well because by the power of the Holy Spirit, He doesn't just wash us and sort of tidy us up externally. He cuts into our very hearts like a good surgeon. He, he enters the soul, the spirit, as chapter 4 verse 12 says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword can come into us, it can change us. It purifies our very consciences if we believe. Not just our actions. It changes us from the inside out. And then he continues in verse 25 of chapter 10. How do we persevere? Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That day is referring to the unknown moment when Christ returns. It, it's pretty clear, isn't it? And when the inspired writings come through the hands of this author to the book of, of the book of Hebrews, we should understand that this is not a suggestion, brothers and sisters, listeners. These are commands. When he says, let us not, some translations say, and do not be in the habit, as some of us are, of not meeting together. Well, what does that mean? Well, what we're doing this morning. Friend, if you are listening to this, if you're watching or listening through Facebook or the radio, anyone under the sound of my voice, if you are a Christian, God did not save us to be in the habit of not meeting together. You want to know one of the primary ways that we've gotten to this point in history as the church? Because people were willing to give their lives by meeting together in times like this, to be thrown to the lions and had their heads cut off so that they could come together and if possible, make it through a Lord's Day service whether or not they went home that afternoon or morning to worship the risen Christ because He's worthy. And that was part of their witness to the world. What, are these people crazy? Don't they know Caesar and all these other world leaders are trying to kill them? Wouldn't it be wiser to stay in a little corner somewhere, hide their lamp under a bushel? Maybe they could quietly sing. Maybe they could turn off the mics. 
Maybe they could stop having a radio program. Maybe, maybe. But the temptation is the same in every age, is it not? We're tempted to neglect such a great salvation. And it's not just a, an impersonal thing that we're talking about. It's to neglect God himself. We were saved as a body. Uh, when Christ died on the cross, he did not just die for me. He did it once for all and for all time for all who believe. He died to make us this everlasting covenant family of God. And he rules now as king. I didn't mention it, but this is essentially the final point that Christ is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king. He is the only one who brings all of those things together, all of those offices together in himself. And he reigns now in the hearts of his people through the word of God. He doesn't sit in the house of parliament unless there is a real Christian sitting in the house of parliament who's trying to fulfill the will of God in there. Christ is not there ruling in the sense of ruling in a saving and sanctified type of way. He's ruling in the sense that he owns everything. And everything that is not done according to his will is heaping up further judgment on those who do not seek to do his will. This is part of the reason we should pray for our governments and our leaders. This is part of the reason we should wish that there would be Christians in the House of Parliament. And not just people who say, Lord, Lord, but who are willing to march for Christ, maybe in a literal sense at times, but at least who are willing to stand for Christ and risk whatever it takes to be faithful to Christ. This is why we need Christians in the law firms. This is why we need Christians in the schools. This is why we need Christians in every sphere of life. So that the kingly, loving rule of Christ would be experienced across the globe. But we must not lose sight of this. He doesn't rule primarily through the policies of men and women. But through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of His people. And nothing can stop that. Nothing if we are faithful to Him in this way. This is why Jesus said, I will build my church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Christ is supreme over the angels. He is supreme over uh, Moses and, and David and, and Eli and all the other priests, Aaron. He's supreme over the whole old covenant. There was nothing wrong with the covenant, by the way. <laughs> That's one of the things that the, the author of Hebrews makes clear. There's nothing wrong with the covenants that God makes. The issues are always in our hearts. It is the, the weakness of our own hearts there's always the problem and the sin in our own hearts. In fact, we were studying this in the 
Bible study this Wednesday night. And there's a passage in Romans that speaks about this. It's a well-known passage. Because Christ has fulfilled these offices, because He has sat down in a completed work, we see these words in Romans chapter 8. It's the first few verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. This is what Christ was doing. Fulfilling the law of God throughout His life in a way that none of us can. God did what we can't do. That's, that's a shorthand description of the Gospel. God accomplished what none of us can do in His Son. We have the final word of God here in this book we call the Bible. As we were looking at last week, uh, Peter says what? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which we would do well to pay attention as that day draws near. Same thing the author of Hebrews is stressing here. There are no prophets today, but there is a prophetic word. There's no prophets on earth, but there's a prophet seated at the right hand of God. There are no priests. You say, well, there's a whole religion that's full of priests. Well, something to think about, isn't it? No, no true Christian religion should have uh, anyone with names like priest anymore, in my opinion. Because there's one priest. <laughs> and it says after he finished the work of the priest, he sat down. We can confess our sin to God. We don't need to confess in a confessional, for example. It's okay to confess to one another, though. First John says that it's a healthy practice for us to be in such a close relationship that we can lovingly come to each other and help each other deal with sin. Sometimes that's the only way, if you're caught in a pattern of sin, that you can help to break it. God will put the right friend or the right brother or sister in your life to walk with you in that way. But we can also, by the grace of God in Christ, come boldly now before His throne. That's in Hebrews 4 as well. We have no king but Christ. And it doesn't matter who's the president. It doesn't matter who's the king of England. We should honor the emperor, as Peter says. We should honor the governor. We should honor our leaders. But we should do that knowing that there is one king of the church. And that is Jesus Christ. And he's given us his, I guess you could call it, constitution again in this word. It says that he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
in the same way that His Word has power to save and to sanctify. And in the same way that He's upholding all things, in a sense, by the power of His Word. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And as we end this year and and prepare to enter a new year, I want to ask us to think about these these things and think about who it is that we gather to worship on Sunday morning. Christ, our great prophet and priest and king. And if you have searched your heart, and, and if not, ask the Lord to search your heart, and we will ask the same for each other. May we all search our our hearts to see if there's ways that we are neglecting this great salvation that we can commit ourselves to starting today continuing on tomorrow into the new year and beyond let us do more than just think of a new year resolution friends but think of ways that we can be committed let's think of life commitments that we can continue until our death that will keep us closer in in communion with Christ that would keep us more enriched by this great salvation and that us here I I keep saying us that will keep us doing that together I would encourage you if you you have questions about anything I'm saying um, you can come talk to me after the service talk to any of the elders talk to a Christian uh, friend that you may have been invited by or come with or if you're listening on the, the radio or Facebook you can Easily contact uh, me. You can look up on Facebook there. Uh, the church number is there. This would be the greatest conversation to begin as we enter this new year because it is a conversation about your soul, your everlasting destiny. And what a, what a wonderful Savior we have. Look at, look at this again. This divine Son wrapped Himself in human flesh not just to set an example, but to bear the weight of our sin, to suffer, to die, but to rise again. He is risen. Christ is risen. And He is reigning. And He is coming back. Praise God that nothing can stop this reality. And it's in this that we find our hope. Let me close by reading some of the words I already mentioned. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, starting in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is covered, is, is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace now again. We ask you to help us to keep thinking about the the wonder of these truths that that Christ has fulfilled the offices of prophet and priest and king. That he is holding and governing all things according to your will, even now, seated at your right hand. That you don't offer partial forgiveness or partial salvation, but complete, unbreakable, eternal salvation in Christ. And we have that blessed assurance in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you that you'd be willing to sacrifice your only son for people like us who will so often in so many ways neglect this love that you've shown us in the greatest of ways. As we continue on today and as we think about things that we'd like to work on in our lives, would you help us not to neglect such a great salvation, such a great Savior? Would you help us as the day draws near to pay attention to this prophetic word you have given us in your holy scriptures, in the Bible? And to remind us that you've, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in the fulfillment of Christ's work, in the indwelling person of the Spirit, and in your holy word. We thank you for these things, Father. And we, we ask that you'd help us to, to be faithful and to be more faithful as that moment of the end of all times draws near. And as we, we, we look to that moment, looking for renewed bodies and souls, perfected, glorified in your presence, help us to proclaim this gospel. Help us to proclaim the the Savior and Lordship of Christ, that He will save to the uttermost, to the uttermost anyone who, who comes to Him. And this is why He came, to save His people from their sins. Use us now as part of this mission, Lord, this commission. And we thank You that we can be part of Your plan of salvation, that You have made us Your sons and daughters. I pray that you'd strengthen us in the faith and that even at this time someone would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and he has lived the life that they cannot a perfectly sinless life that he has died on the cross in the place of their sins and been raised to life so that whoever believes in him will have forgiveness and eternal life I pray that someone today at this moment or whenever they hear this message would be saved one more soul would be brought into your family we ask these things in Jesus name amen All right well, I'd like to invite you at this time to stand with me for our closing hymn from the Trinity hymnal hymn number 